about how he built this. I like that intro of the bumper right there. Get you going. I love this series. It's introing year 20 of us as a community of friends in Dallas that are trying to follow Christ. We are talking about how he, God, built this, this community of friends that are experiencing life as God intended it. We are in no way uh, experiencing that to all the fullness he intends, but we're experiencing it more than we ever have, and we are aspiring to excel still more and to spur each other on to love and good deeds and, and live in that life that God intended for us. God's not looking to rip us off or set us free. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And I'm like, give me more of that. I have experienced more of that here because of this community than I ever have in any other window of my entire life. And we're talking about how God built this community of friends that are in the middle of the richness of life that he intends. Even while we live in a world still racked by trouble, even though sin still torments us, even though at times we quench the spirit, grieve the spirit, God is at work here. And it's amazing. And this is how he built this. But as we talk about how he built this thing in this series, I'm going to start by telling you why he built this thing. Why we started Watermark specifically um, was because I was a parachurch guy. I was a parachurch guy because um, I didn't see any place that I with integrity could invite people to come and experience life as God meant it to be lived. God wants us to be on mission with him. If you're a believer, man, you are a, a missionary. You live missionally. You don't go to a church. You're not born into America and therefore are born into a Judeo-Christian ethic and family. No, you embrace a Judeo-ethic Christian and you choose to be a part of a godly family. But when you're part of a godly family, it should radically change everything about you. I didn't see a community of friends who lived 24-7, 365 that way. I was a parachurch guy. I was one of those guys that his life was changed because some people outside of the context of a local church, because that's where Christians kind of went to incubate, left that and started a mission and a ministry to, um, to younger folks. And, they, and I connected with them and I heard the gospel and I, I saw them making disciples and it changed me. Now, let me just say something. Uh, I had a guy that last was speaking somewhere Friday night and a guy um, said, hey, how's Watermark um, view parachurch ministries? And I said, well, uh, frankly, we, we don't really view them any other way than as brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you wanna know what I think about parachurch ministries, I think they should be completely irrelevant. And what I mean by that is, the church is the hope of the world, the scripture says. And so what are you going to add to hope and perfection and God's glory established on the earth? There's nothing that needs to come alongside God's salt and light. The reason parachurch ministries exist is because the church isn't what it should be. And so they really shouldn't be called parachurch ministries. They should be called people of God at work. That's what they should do. And that's what we are if we're his people. I was a part of a parachurch. And um, it was a place where I saw God radically change lives. It happened to be a place that was a, a Christian summer camp. We would have um, thousands of kids come through every summer. At the time, they lived with us for 26 days. And I, at the end of each of those 26-day periods, these kids would, would get in a gym with us. And before the parents would pick them up, we'd have what we'd call say-so. It would come from Psalm 107, verse 2, where it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And it was a chance for young adults and kids to stand up and just talk about how their life was changed. And kid after kid would stand up and go, man, I, for the first time in my life, saw who Jesus was. I understood the Bible wasn't a rule book. 
I understand that I wasn't trying to build a resume to make God love me, that God was pursuing me. He wasn't trying to rip me off. He was trying to set me free, and I'm going to live for him. And that was encouraging the first year I heard it and the first several times that summer I heard it. It was even encouraging kind of the second year and the third year. But here was the problem. About the fourth year and fifth year, I noticed that the kids were standing up with the same kids that said the same thing the year before. And there were kids that were just kind of saying, man, I know I said last year and the year before that that Jesus is everything that a man should want at my age, but I, I don't know, man. I, I, I just, this year's going to be different. I'm going to go back and live differently for him. And I finally started thinking, what in the world is going on? Why are these kids making, a, I think, a, a genuine decision for Christ and then going back and living in their communities and, and not following Jesus and then coming back and repenting and saying, this year it's going to be different? I'm going to tell you why. It's because I realized we were sending them back to non-disciple making, non-godly father shaping, non-godly mother encouraging, non-world changing churches. And those kids were uh, being confronted by what I would call a last day's church. What's a last day's church? Well, it's what you find right here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says this, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. They will be brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, a churchianity, although they have denied its power. And the scripture says, avoid such men as these. And I realized some kids couldn't avoid them because they were being raised by them, abused by them, abandoned by them. Um, yesterday, a, a young man that I've had the privilege of pouring into over the years is now a leader at another church. And I was with, uh, I was at a restaurant here in Dallas. I bumped into him and he was sitting there having uh, lunch with a couple of kids and I was, um, Noticing those kids didn't look like they were really enjoying themselves too much, and, but I knew he was there to, to hang out with them. They, they, they got done eating, and those kids left, and he came over, and he said, man, hey, Todd, how you doing? I go, I'm good. I go, man, what, what are you up to? He goes, well, I was just spending time with a couple of kids uh, whose mom and dad go to the church that now I'm a part of, and um, this week, their mom and dad, you know, all the fighting that they've had has escalated to a new level, and there's a divorce, and it's gotten ugly right away. And those kids are just sitting there looking, right? This is the church I go to. These are the parents that I've got. Second Timothy 3, irreconcilable men, arrogant, revilers, haters of good. And when kids are around individuals that say they know a God that is a God who is loving and forgiving and world-changing, and we can't even work through our own issues and our own relationships, I want to tell you what, it sets them back. And from the very beginning, one of the reasons we said what we're going to do is go into a city and we're going to establish a church. It's not going to be a last day's church. These things aren't going to mark us. What's going to mark us in all of our imperfection is that we're going to be the people of God and we're going to love children and we're not going to just tell them to come and sit and shut up and listen and eat some goldfish. We're going to encourage them to walk at a young age with God. This is what um, the wisest men who ever live said about, um, about God, that this is not an old man's God. Last night when I was talking to the kids who were here for D-Town, um, you know, I just told them that I never met anybody in my entire life who's sorry he came to Christ early in his life. 
I've never met anybody who said, man, I wish I just had a few more scars, a few more addiction, tore through a few more relationships. I wish I would have um, just accumulated some significant problems in my life so I could see how desperately I need Jesus. It is true. Till sin is bitter, Jesus will never be sweet. But you don't need to drink the bitter vial of rebellion to know it's bitter. There is plenty of illustrations out there. And so what we've got to do is we've got to um, get in front of our kids. I love D.L. Moody one night when he got home from, D.L. Moody was a great evangelist, kind of Billy Graham before Billy Graham. And one night he came home and a buddy was there. He goes, hey, how'd the meeting go? And he goes, it was awesome, two and a half converts. And the guy goes, really? Two, two, two adults and one kid. He goes, no, two kids and one adult. That adult is half dead. He's half gone. Half his life is wasted to live for the, G- for the king. God built this church with us believing from the very beginning that kids were worth our very best. We believe the psalmist when he said that children are a gift from the Lord. They're a burden. They're not a blessing. They are, they are worth us doing everything we can to reach out to them. We believe the fruit of the womb is a reward. Three of us that are on that panel on Thursday night have 17 kids between us. We have not birth controlled children out of our life. We think kids are a blessing and we believe kids should be not just um, some trophy of our fertility. We believe kids are a tremendous opportunity to have them live with us and pour our lives into them that we can disciple them and help them be everything God wants them to be. From the very beginning, we've said we're going to be all about our kids here. I made a deal with the guys that were over there in children's ministry, and we put our best men over our children's ministry, zero to 18. It's not something you just do for a while till you get promoted to real ministry. We've got guys who've been on our staff for 20 years leading in that area, and it's why it's, I think, the best student ministry, children's ministry in the country, because they're being led by godly men who could do anything, and they know children are worth their very best. That's how God built this thing. We're a church now being led by people who came to Christ, were children of the faith here, and now are elders, now on staff, kids that were raised here. Last night, my wife and I had one child who's still in high school who was at D-Town, three kids who have been through our student ministry, some who drove back from college so they could serve here this weekend, two others that are leading in small groups for seven years with kids here because they see that they have more joy and less scars in their life because they understood at an early age, because you walked with him, that God is good. He built this thing on generational discipleship. The psalmist said that children are a gift and we believe that. We, I told those children's guys over there, I said, here's the deal, man, look it. You know, it, it, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do what I can do to encourage and inspire and lead parents and, and um, remind them of the goodness of God so much so that if you take your, their kids and you just give them back to them and they're still alive, they still have a pulse, they'll come again the next week, right? But here's the thing, I want you to love kids so much over there that even if, if I do anything but preach heresy, those parents will be made to come back because their kids will say, I'm learning things here, I'm being loved here, and I'm being shepherded here like no place I've ever been. And parents will put up with me. True story, I was walking out of a doctor's point with my aging parents um, you know, about two weeks ago. And as I was walking out, there was a doc that was walking in and she stopped me and I, I, uh, we had never met. She goes, oh, Todd, it's so great to bump into you. We've been coming um, to Watermark and we're actually not coming, we're part of the body because that's the first thing I always say. What do you mean coming to Watermark? Watermark's a people, it's not a place. And she said, no, 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 we're, we're, we're a member there. And we we're actually, we're, we're telling other folks about how our lives are being changed here. Um, and I've just told them straight up, I go, listen, if you come, Todd's gonna make you mad. But, um, but the kids' ministry is so amazing that you'll put up with it sometimes. 
And I went, thank you, you know? I don't want to make you mad. But I thought to myself, hey, that's the deal. Because they love their students and their children so well, they're willing to sometimes come in here and be challenged and not be a last day's church and not to be left alone, be spurred on. Let me just do this very quickly because the scriptures talk about the fact that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Let me just tell you something. Guns don't kill people. They don't. People kill people. Children... This generation that we're all so worked up about, these millennials, these Gen Xers, these next generation, there are children. There are guns. There are arrows. And if they're not hitting the mark, the problem is with us. Arrows, just a few observations, left to themselves are useless. They're, 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 they're not useless. They're useless. They're, they're, that's funny. They're helpless, Right? <laughs> It's the one who uses the arrow that determines its greatness. Again, we can complain all we want about our children, but they're our children. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And that arrow will fly the direction you aim it. That's the next point. An arrow goes where you aim it. Children have never been very good at listening to parents, but they very rarely fail to imitate them. You know, I heard a guy say one time to his kid, man, why are you like that, son? He said, because you are my father. And he was right. And if we don't know where we're aiming our kids, then shame on us. Right? It's like, um, I remember a lot from all my English lit classes. I do remember Alice and the Cheshire Cat in uh, The Looking Glass by uh, Lewis Carroll. I remember when Alice was sitting there with a cat and she said, would you tell me please which way I should go from here? And the Cheshire Cat said, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. And Alice then said, I don't much care where. And then the cat said, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And that's the way we're raising our kids. Seneca, this is not new, by the way, right? Seneca, the old Roman philosopher said, if you don't know what harbor you're sailing to, you'll never know which wind to catch to get you there. And what we have done in our society, by and large today, is we've told kids, hey, you figure out which way you wanna go. Your gender is fluid. Hey, you figure out which way you wanna go. You define your sexuality the way that you want. Hey, you decide which way you go. What's good for you may not be good for me. There is no objective standard in truth. We're gonna let you figure it out. Whoa. Whoa. Our kids are um, filled with more anxiety, more suicidal than ever because we have just left them aimlessly to figure it out. And then God said it should not be that way. He said you teach them. Here's a fact. There's no pain like the pain of a godless child. An arrow is a blessing. It can provide food. It can provide life. It can provide protection. It can be a great source of blessing, or it can be a source of great pain and destruction. I'll say again, guns don't kill people. People kill people. Arrows don't kill people. Bad Indians kill people. Kids aren't a problem. Bad parents are. And from the very beginning, we said, we are going to shepherd the flock of God among us. That means young in the faith. We're not just going to convert you and leave you aimlessly to figure it out. We're going to walk you in the path of, of, of what it means to be a devoted follower of Christ. That is certainly true of biological children that are given to us. Proverbs 10, 1, a wise son makes a father glad. Man, isn't that a fact? That's an arrow. Who is wise? There's no greater joy, it says in 3 John 4, than to see my children walking in the truth. 
but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Proverbs 17 says a foolish son is not just a grief to mom, it's a grief to dad and bitterness to the one who bore her. Proverbs 19, 13, a foolish son is destruction for a father and in fact, destruction to a civilization. As Abraham Lincoln observed that the philosophy of government in one generation is the philosophy of the children in the previous one. I want you to know, I know that I am raising my future leaders. I am right now discipling the future elders of the church that I'm going to go to and care for. My parents, I just moved them in. My, my mom and my dad, my mom's struggling with some mental issues some dementia. My dad is, is struggling as a caregiver and we moved them down and moved them in with us for a season and trying to figure out next steps for them. And I'm, I'm looking at my kids, I'm going, hey, you, you watching this? <laughs> see me being kind, patient? You see me reordering my life? I, I will tell you, it's the first time in my life I've looked at my dad and said, I'm really close to his life stage. I've never thought that before. But I'm looking at my dad and I go, hey, I'm closer to his slowing down than I am my speeding up. And I am raising my caregivers. I'm raising my governmental leaders. I'm raising my church leaders. And God built this because we knew from the very beginning that our success was gonna be determined by our successor. And we got to get after it. We, he built it this way because um, we believe Jesus when he said that if you jack around with these kids, you know, if you see a child in my name and you cause them to stumble, it says in Matthew 18, that it, you may as well tie a heavy millstone around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. God doesn't take it lightly when we mess with his kids. And what he's saying is not going to be life-giving to you. A warrior who leaves his arrows unattended is inviting destruction upon himself and his people. And we can't leave him unattended. I've said it before, but uh, Manson is the one who said, right? This, this serial murderer, this maniacal leader, where'd you get these folks to follow? He said, they were your kids. You turned them out, and so I took them in. And so has the progressive liberal world. Hosea 4.6 says this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's what destroys people. They don't know truth because they've rejected knowledge. I'm going to reject you from being my priests, my mediators. Since you've forgotten the law of your God, watch this. I'm going to forget your children. You want to see pain? Forget your children. Watch the way they become addicted to opiates. You want to see pain? Forget your children. Let them live with anxiety disorders and constant panic attacks. You want to see pain? Let your kids try and figure out their sexuality without you explaining to them that sex is a gift from me, defined by me, for the glory of me and the beauty of them, if they know what it is. You want to see pain? Kill the next generation of children and wonder why you can't support yourself with your little social security program. God built this because we were a church in the very beginning that knew that we had to be about the next generation. Spiritually, see next week, and certainly the ones that are brought into our home. Jesus says that um, one time he was sitting there and, and they were bringing a bunch of children to him that he might touch them and bless them is really probably a better way to say that. But Jesus saw this. The disciples were shushing him away. Hey, he's too big time for you. And he got indignant. The scripture says he was indignant and said to them, permit the children come to me and do not hinder them. You hinder children when you just try and keep them alive and you don't show them where life is. You hinder children when you don't just show them through your own integrity how to live that life where you just tell them what to do. You say, hey, do what I say, not what I do. Kids 
may fail to do what you say, but they rarely fail, very rarely fail to follow you. And so from the very beginning, we put our best people on this. We've got to have a plan. We hinder kids when we don't have a plan. We don't know how to raise them. We don't know what to do. We hinder kids when we're not present with them. We hinder kids when we're not passionate followers of Christ who can say with integrity, follow me. So we have been about that from day one. We've left some of our best people on it. I'm going to let you meet one. This is my friend, Wes Butler, who could lead anything, and he's leading our kids. Come here, Wes. All right. Well, I'm just a little fired up. Oh, yeah, you have to do that. Uh, take the other standoff. Hey, I, I am so pumped, and, and I hate that Todd gets me all pumped up, and then I got 12 minutes to talk to you, but here we go, okay? So a few weeks ago, I was really excited, too. We were sitting down for a family dinner. I was telling my wife, Brandy, how excited I was about teaching this weekend, but I was telling her how nervous I was because of the timing of it. You see, several months ago, I uh, signed up to chaperone my son Malachi's fifth-grade trip to science camp which just so happened to be this past Wednesday through Friday. And so when I got this email from Todd saying, hey, I think we're going to do it on this weekend. A few weeks ago, I, just, I was just kind of in a panic going, I don't know if I can do that. Maybe I need to back out of science camp. And so I'm having this conversation with my wife and I'm talking with her about it. And I said, Brandon, I, I just don't know. I said, I asked Todd, I go, Todd, are you, are you married to this weekend? And he goes, yeah, this is the weekend. We've got to do it here. And so I just, I just said, I just don't know. And I'm kind of saying it under my breath. And I was like, and it's science camp. And my son Malachi is sitting there next to my wife and he's just kind of listening. He's eating his dinner and he looks up from his plate and he just goes, Daddy, are you married to science camp? And those words, quite honestly, were a dagger to my heart because what I realized in that moment is that I was on the verge of sacrificing quality time with my son for, on the altar of ministry here. And of doing exactly what Jesus and the disciples were tempted to do in that passage in Mark 10 of saying, hey, Jesus is too big time. There's too many things. Wes has too many things on his plate. And Malachi, you're just going to have to hang back. And by God's grace, because of the way that I've been discipled and trained here, I, I just kind of, the Lord woke me up by the spirit of God. And I just went, oh, Malachi, I go, look, buddy, I'm not married to science camp, but I am married to you. And we're going to science camp and I can't wait. And so I just got back from uh, a few days. Here's a picture, I think, of Malachi and me. And uh, just some of our time we spent at science camp this week because there's a hundred guys that could have stood on this stage this morning and talked to you, but there's only one dad that Malachi has and I'm it. And I wanted to be there for him. Now I tell you that story because that temptation that I, in that moment, by the, by the grace of God was able to, to ward off is the temptation that we face quite honestly as a church and as a community to do the exact same thing, to look at our children and say, hey, you know what? We've got too many things going on. This series is amazing. And it's so fun to listen to Todd share all the stories that you've gotten to hear over these last few weeks of uh, lives that have been changed, people who are addicted that have been set free, people who, uh, whose marriages were broken that have been re reconciled and reunited. And we just see all these things. We go, man, look at this. This is amazing. And so let's make sure that we're all about that. And then let's just make sure the kids are kind of taken care of back there. And we never, as you heard Todd say, never wanted that to be true here at Watermark. We believed that children deserved our very best. They were worthy of our very best. And that we wanted to disciple them with everything that we could. And so this message is crucial because we still believe that God is going to do something great in this world. And we are still praying, God, why not with us, but not just with us, why not with our children? Why not with our grandchildren? Why not with our great-grandchildren? 
And so this morning, I want to share with you just the ways that we think about your kids and about this next generation, the way that we think about uh, how we disciple these children. You see, uh, in our core values, one of our core values is that we want to be fully devoted to Christ. And one of the things that we say there is that we measure our success by our ability to be and make disciples. And the children's and student ministry here at Watermark is no exception to that rule. They too are disciples who are waiting for someone to disciple them. And if we don't disciple them, someone will. And so we as a church want to step into that space and say, let's give them our very best and let's point them to where life can be found, not just keep them alive. And so this morning we have, we're celebrating the fact that God has built this on pillars that he has established from the beginning of time, pillars of disciple making of the next generation that we have just embraced and been crazy enough to believe that God is true with what he said, that God's way truly is best. And so this morning, I wanna share with you the three pillars of, that God has set in place that we have seen him build this thing on as we disciple the next generation. So that the first pillar is just this, we believe that parents are primary. You see, the first divine institution established by God was the family. And by design, the family is primary. The family is the most significant human influence on the life of a child. This week while I was at science camp and just interacting with some of Malachi's classmates, I, I just took time as I was walking to different places with them or sitting down for a meal. I just asked them, hey, tell me about your family. And so they would tell me about mom, dad, siblings, all that. And, and what did not surprise me in the least is that the children who the teachers and the principal were saying, hey, you're gonna have to watch out for this one. This one's a little tough. You know, make sure you keep a special eye on him. These are the troubled kids that when I would engage with them, I would hear stories of the most significant brokenness and trauma that were involved in their lives of absentee fathers, divorce, neglect. And it just didn't surprise me. Why? Because parents are primary because the family, when it is broken, it creates broken children. And yet God in his grace has given us as parents this opportunity to disciple our children. There's no other person on planet earth that will have more impact on the life of a child than parents. Deuteronomy chapter six, we see this written. God gave us this plan. He said, this is how I want the kingdom to be built. In verse four, it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, all the time. You see, the church isn't the place where kids are discipled. The home is the place where kids are discipled. And parents, we believe you're primary. And so because we believe God has established this divine institution this way, we as the church believe that it is our responsibility to come alongside of parents and to partner with you that we are here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Parents, you are the saints and that ministry in your home is the most significant ministry that you can give yourself to. This morning, inside your Watermark News, we just put a little insert in there that just shows you ways that we are trying to partner with you parents because we know that this parenting journey is hard and we don't believe that you need to do it alone. And so we create environments like the nest for moms and dad you for dads. And, and we create blog posts that, sh that show you exactly how you can engage with your kids in spiritual matters and disciple them in your home. If you don't have any idea where to start, we want to help you. It's right here. There's tons of ways that we can do that. Parenting is a hard thing, but parents, you are primary and it is our joy to be able to pour into you so that you can pour into these little hearts that are in your home. Parents, we believe that you are primary, but you are not alone, which leads to my second point. 
that we believe that discipleship is a team sport. This is something that God has always said from the beginning of time. Parents, you were not meant to do this alone. It's not good for you to be alone. God said to Adam in the garden. And so young adult, single adult, uh, empty nester, maybe you've tuned out because you thought this was a parenting thing. This is not a parenting thing. This is a community of faith thing. And so tune back in and listen. Because here's the deal. The commands of the scriptures to parents given there in Deuteronomy 6 and other places like Psalm 78 were commands that were given within the context of the community of faith. They were given to parents, but with the understanding that parents would be supported and and strengthened through the community that was around them. Psalm 78, 4 says, look, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And so here's the deal is that from children's ministry to student ministry, we've been crazy enough to believe God that he has called us not just to be teachers to these kids, but to be disciple makers. And we believe that disciple making is life on life. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's why our student ministry says, hey, look, if you want to serve in our student ministry, come jump in, lead a small group from sixth grade and then commit with us to walk with those kids until they graduate from high school, a seven year commitment. It's why we have looked at our our children's ministry uh, leaders and said, hey, will you not just show up every once in a while, but will you show up regularly week after week to be a consistent voice in the life of these children? Would you prayerfully consider years upon years of giving your life away? Because we believe that kids are worthy of our very best and that discipleship doesn't just happen in little touch points. It happens with life on life. I have a ton of stories that I could share with you this morning. I I could tell you stories about leaders like Melissa Patton or Jay Thompson, whose parents uh, or or who uh, have been leading with us since the kids that they are with right now at D-Town, their 12th grade small groups. They've been with them since they were in preschool. And so for over a decade, they've been pouring into them. Kim and Zach Lumpkin came up to me last night after the service and said, hey, Jay Thompson was here the very first day that we showed up when Jonathan was a five-year-old and he's about to graduate from high school and Jay is still with him. I could tell you that story. There's stories around here about, uh, about parents who were coming to re-engage, but were kind of going, man, I just don't know if I should keep going to re-engage. And the kids were like, are you crazy? We've got to go back on Wednesday night because training ground is my favorite thing that we do. Let's go. There's people there who love me. There's people there who are pouring into me. And so I don't care that you don't want to work on your marriage. I want to go to training ground. <laughs> and every time there is a celebration night at re-engage, there are parents who stand up and say, hey, we're still here because our kids were loved and discipled well by our training ground leaders. And so our marriage is a recipient of that blessing. But my favorite story, quite honestly, is a guy named Bradley McCunis. There's a picture of Bradley and his buddy Tyson. Tyson and his family, Vicki and Scott, uh, parents of Tyson, they showed up here when Tyson was in the third grade. And Tyson's on the autism spectrum and they had uh, really been discouraged by trying to go to uh, some churches and just feeling like there just wasn't a place for them and, and weren't sure, but they came here And they plugged into our special needs ministry and Bradley said, hey, I'll be Tyson's buddy. And so every week uh, Bradley would show up and he would hang out with Tyson and help him to navigate through our children's ministry. And when Tyson moved up through our children's ministry and began to uh, move into our student ministry, Bradley said, you know what? I'm gonna go sign up and I'm gonna be one of those small group leaders and I'm gonna be, be Tyson's small group leader. So Bradley, several years ago, signed up to be that small group leader. And this is a picture of Bradley and Tyson yesterday at D Town. Because Bradley just said, hey, look, I want to make disciples. I want to support Vicki and Scott. I want to help them as they shepherd this one. See, this is God's design for the church. It's how he built this. But discipleship is a team sport. And that leads to my final pillar here. 
is that we believe that the future is now. You know, in that passage in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus looks at his disciples and he rebukes them for turning the kids away, he says, no, 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 bring the children to me. And this, this is what he does not say. He says, because the kingdom of God someday is going to belong to them. No, he says, because the kingdom of God right here, right now belongs to them. That's what Jesus said. And so we've been crazy enough to believe that the future of our church is right here, right now, that the leaders of this church are right here, right now in our children's ministry and in our student ministry. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, no, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And I gotta tell you that some of the most uh, uh, crucial examples that I witness in my own spiritual journey are kids who are not here this morning because they're at D-Town and being poured into they're leading me, they're shepherding me. This is why our student ministry looks at children when they move into the sixth grade and they say, hey, we wanna to start to call you to be a part of this body and be a member here and plug in and serve. You see, there's lots of studies out there that talks about how kids are leaving the church and abandoning the church when they uh, graduate and go off to college, but, but here's the deal. And Todd says it all the time, says it very well. Kids are not leaving their church because it was never their church to begin with. It was just mom's church or dad's church. And we believed and God had, uh, has made it abundantly clear that this church belongs to these children. So we began to say, hey kids, this is your church, come and invest. We don't just want kids to consume the church, we want them to be contributors in the church. They are a vital part of the body of Christ. We cannot do what we're doing without them. In fact, this morning, this is a hard morning for our children's ministry because 10% of our volunteer base are kids under the age of 18. Not to mention the cameras that can't be run by the students that are usually in this room or soundboards where students are back there or the front lines team that is shorthanded this morning because students are out parking cars and greeting because the leaders are now. And there's tons of stories of this, but we are unleashing these arrows, an army of arrows right here, right now. I wanna introduce you to my friend, Kate Blocker. Kate uh, is uh, a gal who... Uh, I met when she was about 11 years old because Kate began to serve with her mom when she was 11 years old in our starting blocks ministry. And she just began to hang out. And then as uh, the kids grew up, she just kind of moved up with them. And so uh, in our uh, preschool ministry, she moved up into K-1 race and then she moved up into uh, our On Your Mark. And then her mom wasn't able to serve anymore, but Kate said, no, I'm gonna keep going. And so Kate now is a senior in high school about to graduate. And she's been leading a small group of girls since preschool who are now fifth graders and are about to move into our student ministry. And Kate said, look, this is my church and I have something to give. I have something to offer. And so I love what I asked Kate just to write down some things. Here's what Kate wrote. She said, look, I loved getting to build relationships with the girls in my group. They keep me coming back every week. When I first began serving, my service consisted of building blocks and occasionally acting out stories, scooping goldfish for the kids while my mom taught the lesson. But now, as I have matured and they have matured, we're able to have back and forth discussions about God's word, how it applies to their preteen lives. Because the time that we spent building blocks and building our relationships so long ago, they trust me enough to ask the important questions. And because I have been equipped and poured into by the very same ministry, I can confidently and biblically respond to those questions. The opportunity to grow alongside the girls in my group has been a tangible reminder of God's presence and proactive power to change us. That's an 18-year-old senior in high school. Now here's what's amazing about that story is that uh, there's a little girl in that small group named Hope Bagdanoff. Hope's in fifth grade this year and three years ago, she looked at her mom and she said, hey mom, 
Can we serve like I see Kate and her mom serving? Can we serve in starting blocks? And so for the last three years, Hope Bagdanoff, an 11-year-old girl, has been leading in one of our orange classrooms teaching kids the word of God because the future is now. That's how God designed it. That's how he established it. And so in summary, our mission to the next generation is a discipleship mission. And we believe that mission of discipleship is built on these three pillars, that parents are primary, discipleship is a team sport, and the future is now. And if you want to jump in with us on that mission, again, on the backside of that, there's this little handout in your watermark news. It just says investing in the future. And there's tons of ways that you, empty nester, single mom, young adult, you can jump in with us and pour into this next generation. I'm excited to introduce you to one of my friends who is a part of that next generation. Becca Nail is a gift to me, a sweet friend, and she has an amazing story of how God has used the ministry of this place to build into her. So welcome, Becca. Uh, well, hey, y'all. Like Wes said, my name is Becca Nail. And I actually grew up here at Watermark. So uh, I grew up here in this church back in 99, early 2000. My family decided to make the move over to Watermark. And so I get to tell you today how greatly impacted we were by this place. And so today we're talking about how from the beginning, this church made it a priority to give the next generation, these children, these students, their very best, believing that they're world changers today and that they don't have to wait until they're grownups um, to make a difference. And so because of that, um, Christ through this church, I have been impacted greatly. And so today I'm gonna tell you the story about how this church built into my parents they built into my small group leaders, and then they built into me. So going back to the beginning, my family was your typical Texas Christian family, uh, the Bible Belt, Southern Bible Belt family. The second we headed out the door, it was smiles on and chins up. But the second we got back into the home under our roof, it was complete and utter chaos. Our family was the definition of a hot mess. And it was just chaos. So the way it used to be uh, in our home is there was a lot of fighting between my dad and my mom specifically. And the fights were ugly. They weren't kind. They were cutting. I had a dad who was arrogant and prideful and spoke hurtful and harsh things to my mom. And I had a mom who would, was hurting because of that and would isolate and withdraw, but then would later rage out of anger at my little sister and I. Um, and this is part of their story. They would tell this to you freely. They know every word I'm sharing with you guys today, so don't worry. And like I said, their fights were ugly, um, and they would typically start out in front of us kids, but then if they got more heated, if they got more escalated, they would move back behind closed doors, and that just left my little sister and I in that like state of the unsettled. But like I said, we came to Watermark, uh, and something changed. After spending a couple months in regeneration, our 12-step recovery ministry, uh, they started attending and something changed and they were never the same. The conflict that happened in our house was dramatically different now and the conflict didn't seem so ugly anymore. Both of my parents started owning their part in front of me and they began to say the words, will you forgive me? And so I, at a young age, began to learn that conflict was an opportunity to honor God and not something to be feared or um, avoided. 
And because this church built into my parents, they were transformed through this pursuit of reconciliation. The truth of Matthew 5, 23 through 24 was changing our family from the inside out. I saw my dad leave his gift in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to my mom, and then come back and offer his gift. And I saw my mom do the same. And then they even would turn to me and ask me forgiveness when they would make missteps or mistakes. They would look and say, hey, Becca, I harmed you this way. I led you poorly this way. This wasn't honoring to God because of this. And then they said, Becca, will you forgive me? And so as a kid, this did a lot. I was no longer walking on eggshells out of fear of what would happen when and if conflict arose. I was no longer uncertain of my parents' love for one another, and I wasn't concerned if they loved me or not. I knew they did. And I began to see that conflict was something that could be resolved. I wasn't living in that unsettled, unresolved anymore. And so this served me greatly as a young adult because I went off to college as a more equipped follower of Christ. I saw the value of Ephesians 4, 1 through 4 lived out in my home and know today that seeking unity in the spirit through the bond of peace is a worthy pursuit. And in college, um, it kind of set me apart with my peers I had, I earned the reputation, oh, hey, that's the girl who always asks for forgiveness. And I'm not kidding, my roommates would look at me and give a noticeable response when I would say, will you forgive me for blank? And they would ask, hey, why do you always ask for forgiveness? And I don't know what more is a tee up to share the gospel than that. And so because this church prioritized teaching my parents how to be reconciled with Christ and with one another by owning their faults, seeking forgiveness, my view of the gospel grew. And so now fast forward to my teen years. My family is now living in Mexico, San Miguel de Allende, Guanajuato to be precise. And I, a hormonal teenager at the time, just seeking to find my identity and just to be known and loved and understood, I made the foolish decision to try to find my identity outside of Christ. And I went to try to find it in a particular young gentleman whose name happened to be Juan Manuel Lopez Torres. (laughs) Um, And as an added bonus to you guys, um, his street name was The Crow. Well, one fateful day, my dad saw me kissing the crow. And it was a complete and utter nightmare. But like any good dad would, he forbid me to see him. And I remember looking at him through these tear-streamed eyes and looking at him and yelling, but dad, you don't understand, I love him. And I really thought I did, I thought I loved the crow. And some of y'all might be laughing because you might identify with this moody, hormonal teenager in this story. And then some of y'all might be laughing because you identify with that dad, my dad, who was most likely suppressing condescending laughs at me at the time. But either way, this is just a picture of some of the stories that happened through my teen years. And so even after we moved back from Mexico, these kinds of fights were common and they weighed heavy on my parents and they were flat tired of the wrestling with my anxiety-ridden, drama-over-everything self. And so they called in backup. 
And so in walks Carla Self and Karen Smith, my small group leaders. These two women impacted me greatly because they partnered with my parents, they picked up where they left off, and these women entered into the hormone-heavy chaos and were pillars of consistent biblical counsel in my life. Every Wednesday and countless ministry events for seven years, they beckoned me to abandon the temporal and pointed me to the eternal. Every Wednesday, the importance of John 15 was lived out and prioritized over homework load. I was offered a listening ear and counsel, and I was given new perspectives. And this would actually drive my parents crazy because I would come home and be like, Carla and Karen, they just shared the most wonderful bit of news I've never heard before in my entire life. And my parents are like, are you joking? We've been trying to tell you that for five years. But that's the point of it. That's the point of that partnership. I was fought and advocated for by my parents, and now I was fought and advocated for by these two women. They cheered me on. They celebrated with me in my highs, and they cried with me in my lows. Hebrews 13:7 was lived out in excellence before my eyes. Remember your leaders. Becca, remember Carla and Karen, who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And as an adult now, I have a group of ninth grade girls who I've been with since their sixth grade year. I lead with two awesome co-leaders, Brittany Kelly and Sierra Klim, and I still today imitate the faith of Carla and Karen, and I pray that the girls I've been entrusted with will one day do the same. And so because this church casted a clear vision that world change happens now through students, my leaders partnered with my parents, they stuck around, and they laid a firm foundation for my faith. And so when I was graduating college, um, pride was a big ditch of mine, was, is a big ditch of mine. And I told myself when I was graduating, I'm going to go work at Watermark. Wouldn't Watermark be lucky to have me? Um, this product of their discipling. Um, and at that point, I was fully convinced that full-time ministry was sitting on couches, drinking coffee, and talking about Jesus. And spoiler alert, it's definitely not. And that would definitely not be within my spiritual giftings either. But um, I definitely had on rose-colored glasses when it came to ministry. And regardless, I um, applied for four different positions here. I then interviewed for four different positions here, and then I was told no for those four different positions here. Uh, yeah. And so uh, call me a glutton for punishment, but that was some serious humble pie I was served up by this place. But I remember asking, why wouldn't a place that made such an impact on my parents' life, my leader's life, and now my life not have a spot for me on their bench? But I can say today that those no's were the best thing that could have happened to me. The people that interviewed me and countless other members on staff here surrounded me during that time. The church loved me enough to tell me no, and they cared for me enough to pour, pour into me and admonish me faithfully through those no's. The church was doing what I had seen them do forever. I received critique and instruction, instruction to excel still more. And believe me, y'all, I needed to excel still more. My resume was atrocious. 
I use my resume that I originally submitted as an example of what not to do when I like talk to the residents and fellows on how to submit a really good resume. And I was reminded the importance of what it looks like to know who you are, to like who you are, and to be who you are. This place really could have just stuck me behind a desk, but they actually took time to assess my spiritual gifts so that I could be fully and properly deployed. They loved me enough to tell me to find work elsewhere and, um, and get some experience under my belt. And they wielded Colossians 3.16 beautifully. The admonishment was hard, but I have thankfulness in my heart today, like that verse says. And so as an adult, I look back on that admonishing as some of the most refining and character building moments in my young adult life. I'm able to take critique and feedback better, not perfectly, but better today because of their, this church's faithfulness to pour into me. And so because this church built into me faithfully by admonishing me and critiquing me, I'm equipped to be a better, uh, a, a better employee, ministry partner, and community group member. And so just to kind of wrap things up, from the beginning, this church made it a priority to give the children and students here its very best, and I have personally seen and known that to be true. So parents, I can imagine you might be wondering, does my faithfulness impact my child? And I want to encourage you, the answer is absolutely yes. And young adults, I can imagine you might be wondering, does my faithfulness impact these children and these students I'm working with weekly? And I want to encourage you, the answer is yes. And so for some of you sitting in here, you might be wondering, does this really big church really care and love, for, love me? And the answer is absolutely yes. And so I am so grateful that 20 years ago, this place committed to giving me its very best. This church didn't just keep me alive, like Wes said. This church didn't keep me alive. I came alive here. Thanks so much for letting me share. And that's what God wants for you. Whether you're a child of the faith or a child born into our family, he doesn't want you to just come alive. He wants you to experience life as he intended. Our success is going to be determined by our successor. Our job is to be faithful in this generation so future generations can have faithful people that can follow them. People are following us. The question is, are we following Jesus? God built this with a commitment to us to be serious about that. That's how we got here. That's how we're being led by the next generation. Kids don't want to grow up and be polite. When you ask a kid what they want to do, they don't say, oh, I want to grow up and be somebody who always uses the crosswalk, who has a nice manicured lawn, I even edge it, and, um, and, and, and my kids get to school on time. I want to be a good citizen. No, no. They, they grow up and they go, I want to see a house that's on fire and be the guy that runs into it. I want to be a superhero that takes on evil and delivers people from destruction. I want to change the world. Well, guess what? And God's your perfect father. And we need to be modeling for the next generation because he's our father. We're those people today that are doing exactly those things. And we're saying, we can help you join us, not in going to church, but in being God's provision for the world. Now I'm about to show you something that I almost don't want to show you because this is not student ministry. Student ministry is life on life for seven years 
on the heels of 12 years of prior investment through a lot of other teachers. Student ministry is discipleship. But every now and then we blow it out for our kids and we say, and I spent some time with them last night, and I said, you're worth our very best, and every now and then we're just going to let you have a great time. And remember that you don't need to go the world's way to have fun. This is the last 36 hours at Watermark. Check this out. tell you, it, it doesn't do it justice. It really doesn't. I mean, there was a lot of stuff in there that those kids understand what was going on with those little illustrations. But what was happening there is they were just seeing we love them. And if we just did that and said, come next year to D-Town, there was 3,500 kids. Who cares? If we had a bunch of kids that said, this year's going to be different, and it wasn't, who cares? And I talked to them. I just said, man, if some of you guys don't think that God's real because you see your parents not being radically and all in with him, will you forgive us? Will you tell us who your parents are so we can come alongside of them and love them because we want you to see those who are before you. Hebrews 13, seven is for us. Consider those who led you, and those who spoke to you the word of God and considering the result of their faith or their conduct, imitate them. Your kids are gonna follow you. The next generation of believers are going to follow us. What kind of believers are we? It's why in this series, How He Built This, we've used this song to kind of close us a few times. We want to do it right now. We've just had a little song. It's been a prayer. We're going to be on our knees here a little bit later today for first Sunday prayer like the other campuses do their thing. But we want to be people who have one pure and holy passion. And that is not to have more people come to Watermark, but more people come to know the goodness and the glory of God. That's only going to happen when we follow Jesus. This is our prayer. Would you stand with me and sing it?